Well, good to see everybody here today on this holiday weekend. And I'm going to talk about the business of Buddhism today. And I'll tell you why, and then you'll hear what I got to say. Um, last week I had uh, a couple friends visit me uh, from Arizona. And we went to elementary school together, so 50 years ago. And somehow we've all changed. And this was the first time they'd been in Southern California and had time to visit me at the center. So they showed up and I, and I took them around and showed them the backyard and showed them the zendo and explained how we got there and, and why we're still here. And at, at one point, um, she said to me, well, how long have you lived here? And I said, oh, about 25 years. And there was just this pregnant pause. Like, how could somebody live here for 25 years? And if you saw our center, you might feel the same way. Um, so it got me to thinking, gosh, I've been here for 25 years. Think of all the stuff that I have missed by being here. And then I thought to myself, but think of all the stuff I didn't miss and wouldn't have enjoyed if I had been someplace else. And then two days ago, I posted on my Facebook page a, an article I found that was um, a Buddhist monk was suing his temple for overwork and underpay. And, and he figured the temple owed him about $57,000. And I thought to myself, wow, yeah, you know, that's an interesting way to look at being a monk as a job rather than a lifestyle. And then there was a post by a uh, Western Buddhist nun who was complaining that the lamas got all the money and they didn't, and she needed money because it costs money to live. And she was asking people to send money because she needed it. And, and I could, you know, I mean, the Dalai Lama has talked a lot about this, that, that oftentimes the nuns uh, are under-supported and the monks seem to have enough. So then I started to think about our little center and, and what was our business model. And, and why did it work well enough to keep us here almost 50 years now, you know? Uh, and so I think 2019, no, 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 be 2020 will be 50 years we've been in existence, which is really a long time for a Buddhist center in America because they come and go so rapidly, you know? And it's hard to get the right model for uh, long-term success. So let me explain that our model is unique because every center, every temple has their own model. And if you're an Asian center, the chances are you will be supported in a better way than if you're an American center. Because it has been, Buddhism has been part of their culture for thousands of years and part of ours for over a hundred years. And there's just something about volunteering and donating that works well in Asia. 
but maybe not so good in America and maybe even worse in Los Angeles. So the founder of our center was a Vietnamese monk who was teaching at UCLA in the late 60s and some of his students wanted him to start a center so they could practice with him. And the house that I live in was the first house that they bought in 1970, and they called it the International Buddhist Meditation Center. Now, I don't know why he was so wise, but, but at some point he decided that the Americans were just not going to support a Buddhist center, even one called the International Buddhist Center. So we needed to have a cash flow to keep us going. And he said, well, we'll make it a residential center, and we will charge rent. Because Americans may not donate, but they will pay rent. And so that's how it all started. So we had one house, and then we had two houses, and now we have five houses. And we used to have a nice apartment building as well, but we had to sell that. Uh, and so now we have five two-story craftsman houses, and people might say that we are property rich and cash poor, and they would be correct. And everybody wants to buy our houses to make condos, and we're not selling, at least so far. So, okay, the cash flow came from residents wanting to live in a Buddhist center. But as the years went by, it wasn't so much living in a Buddhist center as it was living in a center that supported them with low rent, a backyard, built-in pets, and parking place. And that seemed to work for most people. In the beginning, we required people to, to do retreats with us and once a week to do samu, which is work, mowing the lawn, cutting the hedges, things like that. We gave up on that after the founder died because nobody wanted to do it. So we figured, well, if they pay rent, that's probably good enough. And that seems to work out fine. So we don't really have a lot of Buddhists living with us, but we have a lot of people living with us, young, old, and in between, who for whatever reason, decided that it would be a good place to hang out for a while. So we've had residents for two weeks, and we've had residents for 20 years. It just depends what the situation is. So, 1993, I moved in to IBMC with the intention to become ordained. And we were going to have a giant grand ordination in 1994. So I went from being a Buddhist of five precepts to being a Buddhist of eight precepts, which is a postulant, someone who's preparing to become ordained. And I had my little room, and I'm preparing to become ordained. And the time was coming now when we were going to have the grand ordination, and it was a big deal. We had like a lot of people and a lot of ordaining masters, and we had celebrations and training and all sorts of stuff going on. But, you know, I had worked all my life. So I was used to, you know, sort of the business model of you work and you get paid. And this was going to be a little different business model for me. So I went into negotiation with the abbot. Actually, she was the abbess. And I said, and she wanted to know how much I needed to be able to exist. And I didn't have any debt at that time, which is really good. 
I had a motorcycle, which was really good because insurance was cheap and maintenance was even cheaper. And it was easy to park right in the back. And, and because I didn't have a lot of debt, I didn't need a lot of money. So, so she said, well, then we're not going to give you a lot of money. We'll give you just enough as much as you need, and that would be your stipend. So, okay, I agreed on the amount. And, and let's, for storytelling purposes, say the amount was $500 a month. So that would be, okay, 6000 a year. And so not quite poverty level, way below poverty level. But she said, we will give you that stipend each month, and we will give you a room to live in. And we will give you health insurance. Now, at the time, I was relatively young and felt healthy and strong and thought, ah, well, you know, I'll, I'll take it because it's being given to me. But I didn't see the importance of health insurance until I started to get old. <laughs> and then I'm going, man, I'm glad I got health insurance. So the health insurance was with Kaiser. And I think each individual is around 200 a month. So you figure 500, uh, 700 a month that you're getting. Okay. Now you have to figure out how to live on that. And you go, okay. And it worked out pretty good. But there were so many times when you needed just a little bit more and didn't have it. And then at the end of the year, what you would do is you would get a 1099 form and you were an independent contractor. So you were a monk contractor. And they would you know, give you your 1099 form. And then you had to pay self-employment tax. Now, if you're not self-employed, you may not know what that is, but self-employment tax is Social Security. And, and the center didn't pitch in because all the business I had worked for, they said, we'll pay half and you pay half. I said, okay. But this center, the center, did say, we're not going to pay half. You're going to pay it all. So at the end of the year, I'm looking at this sort of tax bill, and at six or 700 a month, you know, to come at the end of the year and you owe money. You go, man. Now, there's a way, if you're a monastic, to get out of Social Security. And the Catholics often do that. You know, you just get out of Social Security, and so you don't have to pay it annually. And there were a couple people that I know who did that, and, and now they got old, and they didn't have Social Security. And it doesn't pay much, but at least it's something, and it's regular. And, and so one woman who had become a Buddhist nun, and when she got to the age of retirement, moved back to Canada. That was her home country so she could have health insurance. And they started a group home. So a couple other nuns who didn't have health insurance either moved with her, and they rented a house, and they started a group house. The very first Western monastic conference I went to, which was at Vajrapani up in Northern California, we had Western monastics, men and women, who had come together to discuss stuff, mainly what it means to be a monastic in America and not be Asian. Okay. So what I found by listening to these people who had gathered there was a lot of them didn't have any place to stay. You know, I got the stipend, I got the health insurance, I got a place to put my motorcycle. They didn't even have a place to stay. And then I thought about it, and I thought about all the people now in America who look at Buddhism as being such a cool thing and they want to participate, and they think, well, we'll just get ordained. And they'll look around to find an ordination ceremony, and they'll go in and 
spend a few months training and they'll get ordained. But then after the ordination, they got no place to go. So some of them go back home and let their parents support them. Well, I don't know if that's what the Buddha had in mind. Maybe. But it's just like, okay, how can I be supported? How can I find a way to be supported? Either by donation or by community or by a center or by a temple. So they're often looking. And we get inquiries uh, quite often asking if we have any openings for monks or nuns who can come and live with us. And when you think about how much it costs just to support one monk or one nun, and you've got four or five, that's a lot of money every year set aside to keep your clergy alive. And, and even though we have rent, but we haven't raised it in a couple of years, we don't have enough money to bring in all the people who come and inquire if we have openings. So right now, we have uh, four monks from Sri Lanka and myself. So we've got five monastics right now. And, and the monks from Sri Lanka are used to just having food and a place to live, and then their health insurance uh, is often done by doctors who are Buddhists from their country, who will look at them for free and suggest ways of staying well or healing. For me, uh, I'm glad I have health insurance because I don't know any doctors who would see me for free, you know, and, and you know, they've got to make a living too. So here I am listening to all these stories about how difficult it is to be a monastic. And then I think about Dharma teachers, okay? Somebody who's chosen not to take the precepts of a monastic, but have chosen to take the precepts or training of a Dharma teacher. And they want to quit their job, and they want to be full-time Dharma teachers, and they want to be supported by, you know, donations or fees for the retreat or for the teachings and stuff like that. And I can understand that. Those are sort of like the Protestants, you know what I mean? They, you know, they got their own church, they got their family, you know, and, and they're hoping to get stipends and, you know, keep the place going. And the Catholics are like the monastics, you know. They're just saying, okay, give it to the Vatican, and it trickled on to us sometimes. Or we'll make beer and sell it, and that way we'll support our community. And Ben Franklin is reported to have said, you know God loves us because we have beer. And I thought, that's the perfect, you know. And then I checked the quote, and it's, not a, it's a fake quote. But I thought it was a good one. So a lot of, you know, uh, for instance, Gethsemane, the Catholic monastery in Kentucky, they make bourbon fudge. And, and during Christmas, they got the advertisements, and everybody's buying the bourbon fudge. And there's a, a, a distillery right down the road that they, they bring in the bourbon. And if you're a Catholic monk, you can drink. It's okay. There's not a fifth precept for them. So every day, they, they get up early, do their prayers, and they go make their fudge, you know. And, and, and then they close the day out with more prayers. So they're working hard all the time. But they're having a problem, too, because people don't want to join up. They can't find new monks. A lot of the monks there are really old and have been there for a long time, and the new ones aren't signing up because it's a really a difficult lifestyle. They're up at 3 o'clock every morning. They do five prayers a day. And, and I asked them last time I was at Gethsemane, I said, well, you know, what's, why do you pray so much? What's the purpose of praying all that time? They said, well, the main purpose is that if somebody gets up and starts praying in their house, they know there is a monk somewhere in the world praying with them. 
I thought, that is so cool, you know. What a nice thought to have is 3 o'clock in the morning as you're praying, you know, that somebody's praying with you. So it's a difficult lifestyle for some. I'm lucky. I'm insulated. I, we had a bunch of Westerners who became ordained, and we have a, a Western business model, and it all made sense to me, and we could take time off if we needed it, and we didn't have to work 14 hours a day. And we didn't even have to get up early. We could, we could sleep in, you know, as long as you get your work done. You know, a little meditation, a little work, watch the news, you know. Life was pretty good. So the way I look at it, at the age of 45, I stopped working. I retired. I went from work into a lifestyle. Now, this monk in Japan, he didn't stop working. And he didn't accept his lifestyle as being conducive to practice. It seems he's looking at his lifestyle as, as work, and that's what he chose to do as his profession. But being a monk or a nun is not really a profession. It's just the way you carry yourself. It's the way you reflect on the world. It's the way you relate to the world. It's a much different ballgame. And it took me a whole lot of years to figure that out. So I'm thinking back, okay, what advantages did I have over the 25 years of living at IBMC in a small room, often shared by cats. Well, the advantages turned out to be that I had a certain credibility because I was living at a Buddhist center. I, I wasn't a free agent. I wasn't living in an apartment in Hollywood and I'd be called out to give a wonderful Dharma talk, and people would all give me donations and thank me and happy to see me. And then I'd go back to my little apartment and say, ain't life grand? You know, I was at a place, IBMC, where people could care less, you know, about how good or bad I was. Because they had their own life to live, and they had their own practice, and they had their own stuff to do. So when I go back to IBMC, I'm just another person who feeds the cats you know, mows the lawn once in a while, gives a talk occasionally. And I didn't appreciate it until I saw how, how difficult it can be to live in a community. And it, I imagine it's like a family that you don't choose, which is like a family. And, <laughs> and, and half of them like you, and a quarter of them don't like you, and the other quarter doesn't care one way or the other. So that's sort of what you're living in. You know, and that sort of reflects to me what this is out here in the world of Los Angeles. And, and as I'm thinking about this, I'm going, okay, well, because I had the credibility and the ordination. Now, the ordination's a big deal. You, you might not think that's the case. You might think it's a very personal way of expressing yourself and your, and your connection to Buddhism. But it's a big deal on the religious market to have an ordination. So you want to keep it framed and available for viewing if anybody questions you and your credibility. And then the invitations start to roll in. Invitations that you're not prepared for and probably shouldn't have accepted anyway, but you did just because you wanted to see how things would go. So I'm like going to Australia for a World Fellowship of Buddhist Conference. Wow, you know, I had never been out of America. I didn't even have a passport. And then I got this invitation, and they said, well, the center said, we'll pay for you. You can go over there, and you can represent us. You can represent IBMC and the World Fellowship of Buddhist Organization. 
you know, so nobody knows what IBMC is. They don't know it's five houses on a corner, you know. And, and so I walk in there and I have all this prestige by being invited and having a name tag. And then I got a chance to see how Buddhism worked in the rest of the world. You know, and you had some people that were really smart and well-educated, and you had some people that had a practice, and you had some people that were just representing their center. And you had a variety of ways of looking at what it meant to be a Buddhist, and this was, I thought, very interesting, because it's global rather than down the street. Okay, so I'm there, and I'm listening, and I'm talking a little bit. I didn't want to talk too much. I didn't want to give it away that I really didn't know why I was there or what I was supposed to do, so I just looked intelligent. And, and, and then it was time to leave, and my ticket said I had a couple more days to go, and then I had no place to live. So I had two days with no place to be, and a ticket that I couldn't change, and I'm thinking to myself, where the hell am I going to go in Australia? This is in Wollongong, and it's just north of Sydney. Where am I going to go? I don't know anybody here or anything here. So I'm asking at a table for breakfast if anybody knows where I could go. And there were these Vietnamese monks. And they said, well, you can come and stay with us for a couple of days until it's time for you to go back. And I said, really? I can stay with you? Oh, I was so happy I had a place to stay. And they drove me to their temple, which was a huge temple with a lot of monks practicing. And they fed me and they gave me my own little room and asked me if I had a toothbrush because they had some extras if I didn't. And all sorts of really nice things. And they even wanted me to give a talk. I thought, well, this is so cool. And, of course, what they wanted to see is what the Americans had to say. You know, Were they credible in their understanding of Dharma? Could they present it in a way that would be understood by all listening? So I gave a talk, and they all liked it. I was surprised. They said, that was a good talk. I was surprised. They were surprised. We were all surprised together. So they took me to the airport, I flew back, and I thought to myself, wow, I had like 23 days of jet lag. I thought, said to myself, I'm not going to do this ever again. This is too hard to go traveling. And then I got invited to Sri Lanka to stay at my teacher's temple and pick up the abbess who was over there and fly her back. So I'm flying to Sri Lanka, and I have my little gray robes on. I hadn't quite taken my full ordination yet. And I'm sitting next to this guy. And this guy says, what do you do? I said, oh, I, I'm a Buddhist monk. He was not impressed at all. <laughs> you know? He said, can you recite the Heart Sutra? I said, well, not the whole thing. And he never talked to me again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, he, he understood that, man, this guy thinks he's somebody, but he really isn't yet. He needs more time. So I stayed in Sri Lanka, and it was a wonderful experience. I got to see some ancient Buddhist temples. I got to see all the Buddhist monks and, and see how they lived and see what they did. And, and that allowed me then to have more reference points on what it meant to be a Buddhist monk in America. Because it's not well-defined yet. We don't know what it means to be a Buddhist monk here yet. You know, we don't have that, that longevity of, of monasticism, at least not in Buddhism. We have the Catholic model, but it's a bit different. So I came back, and then in 2011, just after the, the, the planes hit the towers in New York and other times, they were having a conference in Indiana. And it was two days after the attack, and, and everybody was sort of canceling out. We don't want to go. It was a Buddhist Catholic conference, and it was uh, about bringing a certain book 
a Buddhist interpretation of the rule of St. Benedict. It was a book uh, called Benedict's Dharma. And they wanted to have uh, a, um, an explanation of it, and they wanted to have people coming so they could talk about it. And it was a, a conference, and there was tables, and there was a lot of people. But because most people had canceled, they were trying to find somebody to show up, and then they contacted me. And they said, you know, hey, listen, you, we'll, we'll pay your fare. you got a place to live. You can join us, and da-da-da. I said, I'll go. I'll go, you know. So I'm flying there, and everybody on the plane is a little nervous because it's just the plane that's going to go down, and we're going to crash into some building. We made it fine. Everything was okay. And then I'm at the conference, and again, we have the Catholics are really well educated. They they have like masters and PhDs and everything, and a lot of the Buddhists are well educated, and, and I'm not. You know, I practice a lot, I read a lot, but I don't have like a masters or a PhD. So it's a bit intimidating for me intellectually to be in the midst of all these giant intellectuals who can speak and understand everything. And then there's me coming from the Buddhist tradition. My line is, I don't know. (laughs) And in the Zen tradition, that's the perfect answer for every question, don't know. But it doesn't work at a conference. So I said a few words. And people were impressed with the few words I said, and they wanted to talk to me. You know, and we had lunch, and they wanted to talk, and they wanted to walk, and I didn't have any time to be by myself because everybody wanted to sort of understand why I was there and what I had to say and why I said it the way I said it. So I thought, well, this is really cool. And then over the years, I got more and more invitations from the Catholics to participate with them. They had Gethsemane. There's a conference called Gethsemane, Gethsemane 1, 2, 3, and 4. And I was at Gethsemane 2, 3, and 4. And at Gethsemane 3, I was the audio-video guy. And, of course, I don't have a lot of audio-video stuff, so I had my little pocket recorder, and I got a rope, and I tied up the recorder so I could put it around their shoulder and talk into it with the mic on the lapel. And then I had a camera that took a little video, so I'd take a little video and I'd take some pictures, and that would be my audio-video participation. And every speaker I did that with, and then they had their talks written out, so I got that into PDF, and I created a whole website called Gethsemane 3, which is up and running, if you're curious about what I did. It's one of the proudest things I have done that it, because it took such a long time and it was so hard to put it all together in a way that was understandable and not convoluted or confusing, and, and it worked. And I'm going, wow. And then the fourth Gethsemane, I was invited to speak. I got my chance to speak, you know? And, and I wish I had had my recorder because I think what I had to say was interesting. It was about living a life according to the Heart Sutra. Form is emptiness and emptiness is form. How do you get old with that? So I've had so many opportunities because, number one, I was living at a meditation center. Number two, because I had ordination. So, state prison for men. Lancaster, California. Had an article in the LA Times because I had an ordination certificate and I was living at a center and I spoke at Cal Poly Pomona to the Buddhist club, and they took a picture, and they wrote something, and Deacon Szymanski said, hey, we need a Buddhist up here to go with, to talk to the Buddhist prisoners. Are you available? Can you come up here? 
And I said, sure, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just real easy when I'm getting, given an invitation, or used to be. So I went up there on my motorcycle, which is hell. And I met these guys, and there's like 4,300 men behind bars, you know, and the only women up there were guards, and they were not soft and supple, they were angular and hard, like all the guys there. And it was just the most intimidating place I had been. I don't know if you've ever been to prison, but if you have, you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's a hierarchy of violence between the staff and the prisoners. And the strong survive, and the weak become wives, literally, partners. Wow. So I'm up there, and I meet my guys in the chapel. My guys. This is my crew, you know. And I said to myself, well, they're not big, but I bet they're fast. And something goes down, they will protect me. See, this is how I'm thinking, you know. I got my guys. So I'm in there, and I'm talking to people. And, and, and you don't talk about why they're in there, because everybody that's in there is innocent, of course. But there was this one guy that I really sort of was curious about, and he seemed like the nicest guy, and I couldn't imagine why he was up there. And as it turned out, somebody shared his story with me. He had killed his whole family on vacation and ended up there. And I'm thinking, well, it's probably good that we have prisons because not everybody is controlled and self-disciplined. You know? And to take out your whole family on vacation is probably a good reason to be in prison. But while I was speaking to him, he was the nicest guy. And I realized that all this violence happens just for a few moments in a lifetime. And if he had just thought or taken a moment or counted his breaths, it wouldn't have happened. And I thought to myself, wow, choice. You know, how important it is to make the right choice. And how important it is if you're feeling hateful and angry and violent to take that moment and reflect on what choice means and what the consequence of the choice means. Karma, vipaka. So learned a lot, you know, and I was up there for a year, and then I found other volunteers to take my place, and then I went to juvenile hall for five years and, and worked there. Again, ordination and living in a center. And I can remember one of the administration people came up to me and says, can we count on you? I said, what do you mean? Can we count on you not to make any big mistakes that would shine the light on us in an unfavorable way? Can we, can we rest assured that you're going to do your best while you're here? And I said, of course, I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> now, he wasn't, so he didn't get it, but I, but I thought that was really interesting, that there was a certain fear that the volunteers would screw up and make the, their little prison for children look really bad. But juvenile hall turns out not to be a prison. It's a holding place for the kids before they go to court, and they hold them there. So after five years of being there, okay, I'm ready to go for my next assignment. I have an ordination, and I live in a meditation center. UCLA, UCLA said, you know what? The, 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 the chaplain, the Buddhist chaplain of the interreligious conference at UCLA is stepping down. We need somebody to take her place. Would you consider being the chaplain here? I said, sure, I'll give it a try. And then I became chaplain. And I'm at UCLA, and you know, it's just you know, hallowed halls, everybody's really smart, spending a lot of money to get a good education. And there I am. I'm thinking, wow, how lucky am I? You know? 
I never went to college until much later in my life. And then I went to a Buddhist college, which doesn't get you a cup of coffee at McDonald's. And I'm thinking, this is so cool to be around all these really smart people, because now I can see what it's like to be in a major university. And what it's like, it's very political. And there's a whole hierarchy, and there's power struggles going on all the time. And there was I. And I, I have no clue why all these people are trying to do this or that. And, but I'm hanging in there, and we start a Buddhist club. And so we have students coming in once a week to the Catholic Center, because I had been, I had been going to the Catholic um, conferences, and so they knew about that, and they invited me to use their center, and I'm so there I am. I'm like, okay. So I was there like 12 years at UCLA. Didn't even get a degree, you know? Then I was part of the spiritual care committee at the, univer at the, at the hospital, Ronald Reagan Hospital, and I would give presentations on Buddhist ca patient care and, 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 and how to die as a Buddhist. Well, there weren't a lot of Buddhists there, but the ones that were there uh, didn't want to talk to me because they were Asian and they didn't want to see a Caucasian coming in telling them what they should do as a Buddhist. But once in a while, once in a while, there was a Caucasian Buddhist convert, which me, you know? And they had bought some books and they had gone to meditation centers and they were learning what it meant to be Buddhist. And we had a lot to talk about because we had sort of the same background. You know, and we didn't do like a lot of heavy chanting or we sort of discussed philosophical things about how should a Buddhist get well and how should a Buddhist die. And I learned so much from that and hopefully they got a little bit out of it too. So I'm doing all this kind of stuff, but all the while getting older and all the while still at International Buddhist Meditation Center. So I, I turned 62. Okay. Thankfully, I made it to 62, but I went to the abbess of the center and I said, okay, I turned 62, I'm going to pull the trigger on my Social Security so you don't have to pay me anymore, you know? I'll just use that as my stipend, my Social Security. So they were all really thankful, still didn't have enough money even though they weren't paying me, but we never had enough money. We all, I don't know where all the money went, but it went somewhere and we were always strapped at the end of the month. And, I thought by me not taking my stipend that they would have more money, but it turned out to be just the same. Then I turned 65, and I said, you know what? I get Medicare, so you don't have to pay for my health insurance anymore. And when I was 64, my health insurance with Kaiser Permanente was 800 a month. 800 a month. And then it went from 64 to 65, and then it was zero, you know, because Medicare. So I'm going, wow, these guys really spent a lot of money on me. I had, see, I didn't really think about that. They really spent a lot of money on me over the years. And it was never less. It was always more and more and more, you know. And yet they never complained. And, and I did my work as best I thought I could. And, and, and so we had this sort of sympathetic relationship that they were sympathizing with me as being a Western monastic and then they were a Western meditation center and we were all sort of like in this dance together and it was working out fine. And then we started to have less and less staff because we didn't need them as much. We, it was pretty much going well, so we had to let, let some of the people go. But these weren't monastics, these were people who... There was a residential manager, there was a caretaker, there was a handyman. And a, so we sort of, you know, 
let them seek employment elsewhere, and we sort of took up the slack if something needed to be fixed or the lawn needed to be mowed, and so we ended up doing that. And it worked out fine. So now I'm looking at this article about the Buddhist monk suing the temple because he wasn't getting paid enough for the work he was doing, and, and I never thought of it in that way. I thought this is the opportunity that I've been looking for to have an environment that encouraged my practice as a Buddhist. And, and it, there's, it's never a free ride. You're never going to just be invited to be there for free and practice all you want and not be involved in the maintenance or the caretaking of the center. You're always going to have that as part of your practice. That's part of the things that you do. But to give up having a job and to take on having a lifestyle is an amazing event in anyone's life. And I remember somebody saying long, long ago, if you never want to work another day in your life, do something you like to do because it doesn't seem like work. So most of the monks and most of the nuns that I know, even if they're working 12 hours a day, are not really working. They're simply manifesting in their practice in a way that benefits their surroundings and the people. And I think that is so cool. So am I happy that I spent 25 years at little IBMC down the street? You know what? For me, it worked out really good. It's something that allows me to look back as I approach the last quarter of my life and say, you know what? I'm glad I did that. I'm happy with everything that, that turned out. And I still have a lot of stuff to do. For instance, I gave a talk, which I considered my best talk so far, at Center for, Sp uh, for Spiritual Living in Ventura. It's on my YouTube channel, if you're curious what I think my best talk is. <laughs> and, and, and other people sort of validated that and said, yes, that is the best talk you've ever given. And then a friend of mine, I suggested she look at it to, to see what she thought, because she's always honest and to the point. And she looked at it and said, it's not your best talk. <laughs> and I'm going, wow. And then I said, well, what was? And she said, I don't know, but this wasn't your best talk. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, that's such a good answer, because that means I still have more left to do. I still haven't given my best talk yet. I got the work to do, you know? So as I look at what I'm doing, I find that I still have things I want to do, things I want to do better, you know. I just posted something by, the, by um, Salvador Dali today, a quote from him, saying, don't worry about perfection, you'll never get it. And it's true, you'll never be perfect in anything you do or anything you think you are. So as I continue in my little practice, I have less work, I'm getting less money, but have enough money. Everything's fine, financially. And, and I, I get up every morning with, what am I going to do today? And it's only a moment until it dawns on me what I need to do. And generally, the first thing is coffee. Second thing is posting on Facebook. The third thing is feeding the cats. After that, the day is mine. So I might meditate, I might read, I might visit, I might reflect, and I'm thinking a lot more these days because I have time to think, which more and more people don't have. And it's interesting when you have time to think what you come up with and how you can use that 
to change the way you experience the world. So 25 years ago, I got ordained. I'm happy I did. 25 years ago, I moved into the meditation center. I'm happy I did. And 25 years later, I'm older, but have come to the conclusion, I'm going to, this I said in my old, uh, in my best talk ever, but I'll share this with you. This is how I closed it out almost. I said, what I've come to understand now is that Buddhism has really allowed me to suffer less. So as I go into my old age phase, I will be suffering less and I will have more pain because that's how the body works. But I have Medicare. So between, medita <laughs> between meditation and Medicare, I'm okay. <laughs> anyway, does anybody have any questions or comments they'd like to, to share today with what I've said? and how I've lived my life. Or, yeah. Did you always, did you have residence in any, any of these places you went to? I would imagine not, but um, at any of the, the justice, did you, the, the juvenile halls or Lancaster, did you stay there? No, I, I, it was, I, I traveled there. I, w I was a volunteer, and it was like, you, you spend a couple hours there, and then you have to leave. I'm glad I had to leave, you know. But so there's like a lot of traveling. And what I found about giving presentations now, if somebody invites you, like they're in San Diego, and they say, we've got 150 people we'd like you to speak to, you know, for an hour about Buddhism. I'm thinking, well, that's about four hours round trip for an hour of speaking. And, and as I get older, and I, as there's always more traffic to fight and deal with, I, I'm less inclined to say, yeah, that sounds really good. You know, I'm more inclined, if it's down the street, to say, yeah, that sounds really good. But, but even going to Ventura can be a problem if it's not Sunday, you know, because there's just traffic everywhere. And so I find most of the time I'm just sitting there, you know, listening to AM talk radio going, the world is sucks, you know. <laughs> and, then, and then the travel just drains all my enthusiasm. So I walk through the front door and my shoulders are sloping and I'm just like, I don't know. But the, usually the talks turn out pretty good, even with all that stuff I'm fighting against. So no, I never got to stay in prison. I never got to stay at Juvenile Hall. But that's okay. Yeah. So, you know, I go back and formulate my question in a way that makes sense. Your talk today, in my mind, described the choice that you made in your life in terms of a lifestyle and not thinking of it as work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the beauty and the gifts that you receive from that. Yes. They're absolutely unexpected or just unfold. Yes, and challenging because you're not prepared for that. What you're being invited to do, you've never done before. It's always the first time. And you ask people, how do you do it? And nobody can tell you. That's the exciting part. So you go in completely ignorant and hope whatever you're going to do is going to be the right thing and work out. But please, go ahead. With, you're taking the next step of what I was going to ask, which is how do you relate your experience, which is a monastic experience mm -hmm. journey, to the layperson mm -hmm. and how we live our lives in that 
you describe yours? Yeah, I, I think I, I find a similarity in parenthood, you know? Because it, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle when you're a parent. And you're 24-7, and you never get paid enough for doing what you're doing. You know? So how do you reconcile all the work you're doing to raise a child in, and find the joy and happiness in that? You know? it, it, I think you have to not make it work. I think you have to make it um, um, a journey, a journey of this little life turning into a big life. So that's one way I think of looking at it. If you're, if you're single and living in the world, I think the deal is that um, you're in charge of how you experience your life, ultimately. Until then, you're listening to a lot of people tell you how to experience your life or what you should do and shouldn't do or what the right way to do it is. But at some point, especially in Buddhist practice with meditation connected to it, you have some deep insights and, and intuitively know that direction you're going in will, will give you joy and happiness and a sense of satisfaction that you lived your life well. And, and you don't have to be a monastic to live your life well, and you don't have to be rich to live your life well. But the disciplined life of a Buddhist would be the five precepts and meditation practice and the acquiring of wisdom, which really opens the door to a fulfilling life, I think. Maybe not a successful life. See, I, I draw, make a distinction between those two things. Like success is generally looked at as being on the outside and obvious to others. But fulfillment is generally on the inside and obvious to you. may not be obvious to others. So I have found much fulfillment, but not much success in being a Buddhist monastic. And that might be a, a signpost as well for a layperson. You know, do I want to be successful? And how much do I have to give away in order to achieve that success? You know. Does that make any sense to you? Okay. Thanks for the question. So how long have you been a Buddhist? Um, not very long. Okay. So you're still figuring it out. Uh, I don't know. It just feels like the right path. You know, to yep. journey around would be different. It felt that way to me, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it sort of self-validates. You, you test it out. You want to see if it's right for you. And, you, and it, for me, it always, yeah, that's, that's what it was. You know? And then I, I considered myself a Buddhist when I took the five precepts. It was a ceremony. I got a certificate. So this, the five precepts now were my reference points on how to be a good person. You know? and, and then after practicing the five precepts, I, I got a much stronger meditation practice. And that allowed me to see that I was gaining the mind of of insight, which I didn't have much of before I started to meditate. <laughs> I was pretty much a hedonist and overly simplified lifestyle, which would gave me a lot of gratification, but it just didn't seem to make much of a difference in the world to myself or to others. So Buddhism really allowed me to look at myself much differently. And, and I eventually just started to call myself a Buddhist because when I looked at the world through the Buddhist glasses, it seemed to include everything. When I looked at the world through the glasses of a man or a woman, it seemed to leave a lot out. Or a successful business person lived a lot out. But Buddhism seems to be inclusive. And all the stuff that's happening seemed to, seemed to allow me to use Buddhism to understand it and find the right choice. Yeah, good. Well, welcome aboard. That's nice. That's good. <laughs>